I lift up my eyes to the Appalachian Mountains. I see the two-inch by six-inch white blazes painted on trees and rocks that will keep us on track all the way from Georgia to Maine, 2,190 miles. Where does my help come from? It's in the God-given gifts of a healthy heart, joints, ligaments, bones, and joints that each perform a coordinated function that make every step possible. It's in us together, Ernie and me. It's in fellow hiker camaraderie, Dale, Aubrey, Tyler, Comp Dog, Moses, a reflective marine hiking the trail in memory of the five young men who died under his command. Two young brothers contemplating how they can make a difference in the world. A grieving family on Sunrise Mountain. It's in the quietness and simplicity of the trail that provides a refuge from the scramble of everyday life. It's in the majestic views on Siler Bod, Charlie's Bunyan, the Smokies, Mount Moriah, McAfee Knob, Mountains Washington, Adams, and Madison. God's help is in trail magic, a bottle of water left by a hiker atop Mount Lafayette just as we ran out of water on a very hot day. Or, or cold orange juice in a cooler placed by a church youth group at a trailhead. It's in a first aid box on a tree. It's in water from even a barely a trickle spring. It's in bird songs, the pileated woodpecker with a chicken-like call, the towhee whose call reminds me daily to drink your tea. It's in the spring forest brimming with beauty, mosses, trillium, ferns. It's in the knitting together of broken bones. God will not let your foot slip at a place where God is not present, for God is everywhere. On the rock where Ernie fell and in the hole where I rolled my ankle, in my cancer diagnosis 10 years ago, it seems that there is always a way through, under, around, over, no matter what the bump or obstacle, because God is there. These inconveniences can be embraced to discover new sources of renewal. Because my usual therapy for the stresses of life is hiking or walking, I was in a big slump with this broken bone. Then one morning I decided to vicariously have Ernie take me on our early morning creek walk as I lay in bed trying out my centering prayer learnings from our friend Linda Wanger and Pastor Todd. I lose myself and find myself on the Appalachian Trail. Being a one-focused person, I find healing and renewal from head to toe in the simple daily task of putting one foot ahead of the other. My whole being is heightened 
too soaked in the amazing creation of the forest. I am being prepared to tackle the complexities of life back in my daily routine. The trail stirs up a spirit of gratitude for things taken for granted. Clean water from the faucet, a place to sleep for the night, fresh fruits and vegetables. The trail is my silent retreat. Oh yes, Ernie and I do talk to each other, but lots of the time we're silent, sometimes totally mindless, sometimes pondering big questions presented from our pastors, like, what in life is it mine to do? Etched into um, a rock along the trail in New York is a quote from Walt Whitman from Song of the Open Road. Afoot and lighthearted I take to the open road or trail, healthy, free, the world before me, the long brown path leading wherever I choose. A quote that was scrawled into a privy wall at a shelter in Maine says, it's nice to have an end to journey toward, but better is the journey toward the end. Can this be true even in the midst of pain? Benton McKay the visionary of the Appalachian Trail, says its purpose is to walk, to see, and to see what you see. In real life, I believe that means seeing God in every place, in every circumstance. God watches over us in our comings and in our goings. Ralph Waldo Emerson suggests that when you've worn out your shoes, the strength of your shoe leather has passed into the fiber of your body, and I might add, your spirit too. My wish is that my inner strength drawn from the Appalachian Trail will ripple outward to positively bless other persons and relationships. One of my earliest childhood church-related memories is of our church calling a special meeting to pray for healing for Mark Hess, our neighbor on the adjoining farm west of ours, and the father of three young boys, one of whom is Melanie Hess's father. I recall our church being packed for Mark's funeral not long after that special prayer meeting. While I was in my teens, our family and church community prayed for my Aunt Lois to be healed of her cancer. She died as a young mother of three young children. Also, while I was in my teens, our family walked with my Uncle Elmer Charles as he gradually weakened with what we now call Lou Gehrig's disease. With deep feeling, he told us at a family gathering of his perplexity with how to respond to visitors who urged him to just believe God would heal him and to pray to that end. They told him he could claim healing from God if he had sufficient faith. Within several years, he died, leaving a family of five children. 
Over the years, I've known persons who believe that sickness or injury from an accident are attacks from Satan, and that if we remain prayed up, God surrounds us with a protective shield against sickness and injury. If sickness or injury do result, we pray for healing and a restoration of that shield. In my late teens and early 20s, I experienced two major physical crises, one due to a careless mistake of mine and one apparently random. More recently, I again experienced major health events which significantly interrupted my life plans and routines. In these experiences, most recently, of course, as I lay helpless on the rock on Mount Hayes in New Hampshire two years ago, I wrestled with the questions of where was, where is God? If God is our protector, why did this happen to me? As Lois said, Lois and I frequently begin our hiking days with Psalm 121. He will not let your foot slip. The Lord is your keeper. Where was my guardian angel on whom I relied for protection? I was aware of and grateful for many times I was spared from catastrophe of some sort. Why not this time? While a complete answer to those questions remains cloaked in mystery for me, even in the midst of the struggle with the questions, I began to be aware of countless angels, messengers of love, concern, and accompaniment for Lois and me, an awareness that continues to this day. I know of accounts of settings and persons in which People prayed for healing and were immediately healed. One of the mysteries I hold is how and why that happens for some and not for others. I have not experienced instant healing from my diseases and brokenness. On the contrary, some of my healings have been even slower than first projected by the doctors, and that's hard to take. The surgeries... Procedures, treatments in which I uh, participated were for the purpose of supporting and enhancing my body's capacity to heal over time, a capacity inherent in creation design. I believe that as I submit to and cooperate with this divine healing process, it opens the door to the multi-level wholeness of which Todd spoke last week physical, spiritual, and relational. So while crying out to God for rescue, for deliverance, for healing, for God alone my soul waits, my hope is from him. I'm also clinging to and finally resting in God. On God rests my deliverance and my honor, my mighty rock, my refuge is in God. This struggle, I think, reminds me of that of a frustrated child crying out in angry protest against a parent who restrains the child for reasons the parent understands, but the child doesn't. 
until the child exhausts itself and is left with nothing but to relax in those loving parental arms. It brings me to the place described in our text from the prophet Habakkuk, a place of resignation and trust in which I can say, even if I don't experience all the healing I desire or in the time in which I want it, I am being healed at many levels. I have abundant reason to give thanks. I will trust God. All is well, and all will be well. Scattered across the years of my life, there also lie memories of deep emotional pain and brokenness. Failure to reach goals that were important to me. Times when my actions caused others pain. Unfulfilled dreams, plans, and hopes. In these also, I have bogged down in almost endless cycles of angry disbelief, numbing pain, and questions without satisfying answers. Where are you, God? Why did you allow this? O healing river, bathe me in your waters. And then, and frequently it's not until the exhaustion of my struggle, I begin to discover that God is present here. I dare to claim feebly, all will be well. This process is not a straight line, one-time journey, but rather a repeating cycle with multiple levels of pain and healing. Sometimes even decades later, another layer of this metaphorical onion surfaces and the cycle repeats. While hiking, and especially hiking on the Appalachian Trail, we encounter countless rocks that we experience in multiple ways. I frequently find myself reflecting on the numerous biblical references to rock as a metaphor for understanding God. The many faceted ways we experience rock represent for me some of the ongoing mystery I encounter in relation to sickness, brokenness, prayer, healing, and God. There are the parts of the trail where rock provides a sure, firm, and safe footing. Places where rock outcroppings offer haven and protection. There are the thousands of rock pieces, and Pennsylvania is notorious for them, the Pennsylvania part of the trail, the thousands of rock pieces over which one might easily stumble, the steep rocks that present a challenge and require hard work to stay on the trail, the dangerous rocks demanding utmost care to safely cross, and finally, the rocks that present a complete obstacle in the path. Do all of these add to our understanding of God and God's ways with people? Then there was the rock on which I fell, and it broke me. Ironically, 
On the morning following my injury, before the surgery, the surgeon who had rearranged the broken pieces of my bone so they could begin to heal entered my room, stepped to my bedside, extended his hand and said, Good morning, Mr. Hess. I'm Dr. Rock. Well, the word healing. Can this wonderful spiritual word describing the journey to wholeness also have a political meaning? Can nations that have been estranged from one another heal? The prophet Micah's vision is rich, and as God settles disputes between nations, the people relax in the shade of the vine with the fruit of the vine and are at peace and without fear. The prophetic visions are always moving, making the reign of God in our world tangible, human, and vibrant. And in addition to Micah, one of my very favorites is Isaiah. In chapter 7, Isaiah describes the mood of people in advance of war. And I quote, When word reached the king of Judah that the armies of Syria were already in the territory of Israel, he and all of his people were so terrified that they trembled like leaves shaking in the wind. And in chapter 9, his descriptions of a time of peace are equally compelling. For the boots of the tramping warriors and all their garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What a contrast from the intense fear that war creates in deep human trauma to a celebration of God's peaceful reign that includes the burning of bloody uniforms of battle. So, yes, this wonderful spiritual word of healing can be understood to have dramatic and real political implications. But does it ever happen in our world? Well, as you might have heard, at the beginning of this month, President Obama went to Laos, tiny country of Laos, and in his opening speech said the following words, we have a moral obligation to help Laos heal. I was mesmerized by Obama's visit. Many of our Lao American friends stayed up until 3 o'clock in the morning so that they could listen to Obama's message in real time. They listened, they cried, and they said, we don't want this week to end. Clearly something deeply moving was happening. It was spiritual, emotional, political, and human all wrapped up together. Maybe even healing. To understand this, we need some background. Linda and I worked in Laos in the early 1980s (laughs) as representatives of Mennonite Central Committee. Just to help you with the math, that was 35 years ago. 
This was in the aftermath of the U.S. secret air war, which had dropped 2.2 million tons of bombs on Laos in 580,000 bombing missions between 1964 and 1973. This equates to one plane load of bombs every eight minutes around the clock for nine years. At least 270 million cluster bombs the size of a tennis ball were dropped, and many of them failed to blow up. Tens of millions of these still lethal bomblets and other pieces of unexploded ordnance still littered the soil at the end of the war. So as I watched the president's visit unfold, my mind wandered to some of our earliest encounters with Lao villagers, survivors of the war when political tensions with the U.S. were still high and a visit by a U.S. president would have been absolutely unthinkable. This haunting photo from Linda's first visit to Sien Kuang, Laos in April of 1981 tells a very sad but very, very common story. The day before this photo was taken, these two children and their nine brothers and sisters had lost their mother when her hoe hit a cluster bomb buried in the garden. The hoe head was given to us by the woman's husband in the hopes that we would tell the story of her death to the people of the United States. Lest you think that all of this is ancient history, just last Sunday, two brothers, ages 9 and 10, from Kamuan province, were out digging for crickets for food when their digging tool hit a cluster bomb. It blew up, killing them and seriously injuring their friend. Countless times in Laos, we sat in rural bamboo thatch villages and listened as families told us stories of pain and loss due to the war and its tragic aftermath. Bomb containers bearing the names of U.S. companies, like giant corporate calling cards, could be found everywhere, serving as foundation posts for granaries or containers for herbal gardens. These uncomfortable reminders of our citizenship, mute hulks of steel though they were, posed questions of responsibility and justice that hovered in the village air during our visits. We saw still lethal bombs in fields, gardens, and village paths, and heard of children whose innocent play with a strange metal ball had turned fatal in a fiery explosion. One elderly woman who had lived in a cave for nine years told me, we lived like mice and rats. We had to crawl on our hands and knees to the back of the cave to poop and pee. We saw farmers risking their lives to make their villages safe, carrying still lethal bombs out of the village. And in the eyes of villagers welling up with tears, we met memories too painful to be spoken the intimate and human suffering of Cold War politics imposed from worlds beyond. Friends, this is far, far from the vision of Micah. Could healing ever happen? Yet midst all these reminders of war, we were always received with warmth, grace, and kindness. We often sat with villagers around a low table filled with baskets of sticky rice, bowls of soup, and plates of meat surrounded by spicy sauces that awakened every taste bud. 
Midst the joy of shared food, the lively banter and spontaneous bursts of song, the powerful symbolism of the moment would sometimes fill our souls like a symphony. The bowls, cups, and spoons laden with food had been fashioned from weapons of war, bomb casings, and dispenser tubes. As villagers transformed the weapons of war into instruments of hospitality and welcome, that which had been intended to destroy life now offered sustenance to, lo- to nurture life. What, we wondered, what deep inner work of spirit and heart had these villagers done in order to receive us, representatives of the nation whose lethal bombs still lurked in their fields? And what was required of us, recipients of so much grace and blessing? Had healing already begun around these village tables in the midst of deep political animosity and estrangement? Was Micah's vision springing to life? Well, this is why I was mesmerized. Would our president speak to this troubled history of a secret and devastating war? And if so, how would he remember it? Memory is a powerful thing, for it is how we interpret history and shape our identity. The social location or power of the one recounting the history has great influence on the way the history is narrated. Memories spoken selectively can deepen wounds. Memories rightly remembered can make space for healing. And so I listened intently as President Obama stood on Laos soil and acknowledged that the air war in Laos was a secret war and for years the American people did not know. He went on to say that the United States had dropped more than two million tons of bombs on Laos, that villages and entire valleys were obliterated, that the ancient plain of jars was devastated, that countless civilians were killed, and that the remnants of war continue to shatter lives in Laos, that the wounds, a missing arm or leg, last a lifetime. None of these words by the president changed anything about the past, except that it was now remembered, acknowledged truthfully by the president whose predecessors had pummeled Laos with bombs and denied it for years. Remembering and stating the pain we have caused is an important step toward healing. And then came words that signaled a future built on a different premise. It is our moral obligation to help Laos heal. The president promised $90 million over the next three years for ordinance clearance and victim assistance. Thankfully, the president did not frame this as a magnanimous act of generosity or, or as routine bilateral assistance. Rather, it was cast as an obligation an obligation, something we must do because of what we did decades ago in a dreadful war. I joined my many Lao American friends and colleagues in celebration. This, this was stunning news, for our earlier years in Laos were in that 20-year time period between the end of the bombing and the beginning of clearance. During that time, there were no clearance teams, no surveys, no release of bombing data, only bombs, sad stories, 
and political estrangement as the wounds of war remained raw on both sides. The U.S. wanted help in accounting for pilots that had been shot down over Laos. Laos wanted distance from that nation that had made it rain bombs for nine years. Now, the story of how we got from those sad realities to Obama's visit and commitment of more funding is not one I have time to tell. But the story in Luke's gospel about the persistent widow comes to mind as an apt metaphor. These things don't just materialize out of thin air or from idle wishing. They require action, even in a time when there is no hope. And it is often the actions of ordinary people that create the conditions for governments to finally act. The president's trip was the tip of the iceberg. After decades of work, after MCC's bomb removal project, after a decade or more of effort to ban cluster munitions, after strong focused advocacy by legacies of war, and just in the week before president's trip, the decision by Textron, the last remaining cluster bomb producer in the US, to cease production because there were not enough orders. Amen. <laughs> These struggles require the efforts of thousands of people over many years. It is possible, of course, that the president's words and motivations are not genuine or that they are mixed at best. Cynics could well argue that the primary concern is really the strong influence of China in the region that the clearance of bombs by the U.S. simply helps counter that influence. Others have argued that 90 million over three years is way too little and way too late. Whatever the motivation, the support of U.S. and other donors has increased significantly over the past seven or eight years. And the new commitment is larger. The number of people working at clearance and victim assistance has swelled to over 3,000. The number of casualties has decreased from over 300 a year to less than 50. The result is more Lao villages where people are able to live in peace and unafraid. Is this not healing? At the end of one of his speeches, President Obama said the following, and above all, acknowledging the history of war and how it is experienced concretely by ordinary people is a way to make future wars less likely. War is not just about words written in books. War is about the countless millions who suffer, the innocents who die, and the bombs that remain unexploded decades later. Friends, these are good words, but they are not really true words about ourselves. Whatever healing has happened between the United States and Laos, there is more healing needed. Absent from the president's remarks was any mention of the use of Agent Orange, which believe is still causing birth defects in villages along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And there is still more needed among us, for I truly believe that the very system that created the secret air war in Laos is still functional, is still operational. And while the technology, the places of tensions, and the focus of our national fear in the world have changed, our nation's violent pursuit of national interests has not. Afghan and Pakistani villagers who live under the constant buzzing of our drones do not live in peace and unafraid. What sad words of remembering will a U.S. president need to make 40 years from now in places like Syria and Yemen? And what may be required of us for that to happen? 
Many of our African-American brothers and sisters in this country cannot live in peace and unafraid in the context of our political rhetoric, law enforcement, and criminal justice system. Does the opening of the African-American Museum in Washington, D.C. yesterday take another step toward healing? Our Native American brothers and sisters whose communities used to thrive on this soil still live deeply wounded by the genocide that happened in our nation's founding. So even as I celebrate the healing of relationships and land that is happening in Laos, I long for the healing to go deeper and transform our very character as a nation. This may sound unrealistic, but let's remember, in the aftermath of very harsh treatment of Mennonite conscientious objectors in World War I, we banded together. We were in need of healing. We assumed it reasonable that our government should accommodate our religious convictions, listen to our concerns, treat us with respect, and provide alternatives. We expended great resources in time and structures to negotiate and implement a new agreement with our government in advance of World War II and the Civilian Public Service Project. If we organize, petition, and pray, and expect that our government should allow us to live in peace and unafraid, should we also not have that expectation in relation to others? Jesus' way of peace, healing, and love is not motivated by self-interest, but by the embrace of others made in the image of God, like the villagers of Laos who cowered in caves during the war and then welcomed us with food, song, and the stories of their lives. Micah's vision of healing between nations which came from the time period when people were trembling like trees shaking in the wind, is relevant today. Let us make this community of faith a place where this vision is nurtured, prayed over, earnestly discussed, and given hands and feet. May it be so. Thanks be to God.